A thief broke into a house at night. The lights were off and the house was quiet and he was rummaging through the house trying to find things to steal when he heard a voice saying, Jesus is watching you. He starts looking around, trying to figure out where this voice comes from and he can't figure it out, so eventually he decides it's just his conscience telling him uh, that he's doing that. But even though he hears, hears, decides that, he continues looking for things to steal. And then he hears the voice again, Jesus is watching you. This time he starts to pay attention a little bit closer, looking around. And eventually he figures out that the voice is coming from a parrot. And so uh, he looks at the parrot and he says, uh, what is your name? And the parrot says, Moses. He said, what kind of people would name a parrot Moses? And the parrot said, the same kind of people that name their attack dog Jesus. <laughs> the fear of God was placed into him because Jesus was a vicious attack dog watching him. We all have some sort of idea that there is a God out there who is watching over us. And for most of us, when we stop and think about it, it's kind of maybe not an attack dog. Maybe some of you think that way, but it may be more like Santa Claus. And we started, I'll confess, listening to Christmas music yesterday. Uh, One song that really, I think, encapsulates our uh, image of Santa Claus really well. Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you are awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. And it's sung in a sort of uh, light, airy, happy kind of way. And it is really terrifying to think that Santa Claus is watching everything you do. And so you better be good so that you can get presents at Christmas. And if we stop and think about our image of God we probably have something fairly similar. That God is the spirit in the sky. He is watching over us to make sure that we're good. And if when we're not, probably for the most part, he winks at uh, at us, but we better be careful just in case so that we don't make him too upset. Today's story in Genesis 31 is about God watching over his people. There, it is also the story about two very different gods who watch over their people. And so it raises the question, what kind of God do you think is watching over you? When you stop and think about God, what is he really like? What is he looking for when he's watching over you? You would have had a visual reminder that God is a watching over us or a witness. If you were to travel northeast of the land of Canaan 3,000 years ago, just over the other side of the Euphrates River, you would have seen two piles of stones, or it's not totally clear, but maybe a pile of stone and one large pillar. And you would have seen in multiple languages the name of that monument that is there. It is translated in English, God is witness. We read in verse 47, Laban called it Jager Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. 
Therefore he named it Galid and Mitzpah, and he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, if you take my wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Every time you walked by that monument, you would be reminded that God is watching, God is a witness. It was a monument to two different gods. That's why they name it in two different languages, Aramaic and Hebrew. It's because it's really going to be the story of not only two different gods, but two different families. Jacob is, at this point, he's been living with his uncle Laban for 20 years. His Laban is his mother's brother. And that is where his, so that's where his mom came from. That's where his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, came from. So that's where his wives came from. But he is now separating from them. And this is going to be the last time, thankfully, that we have to hear about Laban. Because the two families end their gods, or at least um, the, God, the, the one true God is going to be uh, separate. There's going to be a, a physical separation of uh, these two different groups of people. And so, first of all, we're going to talk about what kind of God Laban believed in. This is the, the sort of conflict that we, the tension that we experience in the story is that Laban's gods are stolen by his daughter Rachel as he is out shearing sheep. And apparently they were little figurines. He maybe kept in his mantle or had some sort of shrine uh, set in his house. And they were uh, small enough apparently to fit in a bag that uh, was carried on the saddle. And so she takes them from Laban. And when Laban realizes his family is gone, and then realizes his gods are gone. He starts chasing them and he pursues them. They're a a big group of people. Jacob has been blessed as he spent these 20 years there. He's now got two wives plus their servants, plus uh, their 11 children, at least 11 sons and then some daughters, and then a lot of cattle, sheep, and goats. And so uh, they're a pretty big group. And so Laban is able to catch up with them. And when Laban catches up, catches up with them, he makes this big show about how sad he is that he's lost his family and how he really wishes he could have thrown a big party for them. But none of that is true. We know that the only thing that Laban sees in his family are objects for him to be able to make money. When uh, his uh, when, when his daughters agree to go with Jacob in verse 14, they say to them, to Jacob, is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. He treated his daughters and his family like property because Jacob's God was money. That is what he worshipped. And he wanted more than anything in this world to get as much money as possible. And so maybe he had these uh, figurines built that represented some sort of local God that he would pray to and ask them to bless him. 
And he would made them his God. He thought they had some sort of spiritual power. But one of the major emphases in this passage is that those gods are absolutely powerless. They can do nothing to protect or provide for Laban. They cannot even protect themselves. For his own daughter was able to take them and hide them in a saddlebag. And then when he comes to find them and he searches all around and he's looking for these puny little gods, she takes the bag, she puts it on the ground, and then she sits on them. And she gives this really strange explanation that I've been wondering about probably my whole life. I don't know my whole life because, yeah, I didn't understand it when I first uh, read it. But in chapter 31, she says, verse 35, she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. You think that's, maybe she's just being clever. You know, Laban, he's a guy who doesn't want to ask any more questions. Okay, uh, I'll I'll let you be. Don't worry, I'd just rather not know about this. But what really, at least, I don't know if Rachel's doing this, but the biblical author is making a statement about the impotency of these gods that are now sitting underneath this woman. Remember that Rachel had trouble with pregnancy. and She wasn't able to get pregnant. She saw her servant, she saw her sister get pregnant. She wasn't able to get pregnant until she prays to God. And God opens her womb and gives her a child named Joseph. The one true God shows that he is, hears her prayer and that he has enough power to open her womb. And now she sits on this God with this excuse that she's, uh, uh, the way of women is upon her as a way of saying, these gods could do nothing for me. And I think the biblical author is winking at us and he's smiling and he's saying, these gods are as good as used, I'll say napkins, or used, just to make it a little more clear, there's a theological statement here, All of the other gods are as good as used toilet paper. That is the kind of statement that the Bible is making. And the Bible makes lots of other statements that are not appropriate for what we would consider polite company. This is the exact same thing about our own righteous deeds. They are only good enough to be thrown in the toilet and flushed, never to be seen or smelled or anything else by a human being again. The Bible delights, actually, in mocking these other gods that have absolutely no power. And these are the kinds of gods that Laban worships, the kind of gods that Laban thought were going to make him rich. And in the end, Laban gets exactly what he deserves. He loses his wealth and he loses his family. All of them separate from him, never to be seen again. That is all that Laban's gods can do for him. When you make money or power or fame or comfort or anything else in your life your God, then in the end, you will lose absolute, 
absolutely everything. I've already used one terrible uh, sermon joke in this sermon, so uh, might as well keep it going. A man uh, goes to heaven, and he's got a suitcase. And he says, I know you're not allowed to bring bring anything into heaven, but I just love, this is so valuable to me. Is there a way you can make an exception that I can bring my, my suitcase in? And somehow he gets it in. He gets it in through the gates. And uh, people are looking at him like, how did you do that? How did you get that suitcase in there? What is in the suitcase? He's like, look at this. And he puts it down. He unzips it. He lifts it up. And it's full of gold bars. And they, other people around look at him. They look at the bars. They look at him. And they have this confused look on their face. And they're like, why would you bring pavement into heaven? The streets are paved with this stuff. It has no value here. You you thought this was so important to you, but it has no value ultimately in eternity. That's what happens when we worship false gods. In the end, we lose absolutely everything. And that, that was some horrible theology in that, uh, but the toilet paper is good theology, just, so, just for the record. So Laban's God, Laban ends up losing everything in the end, but Jacob's God ends up blessing him abundantly with way more than he can possibly deserve. Throughout this passage, we see the biblical author, we see God showing himself as someone who can be trusted to look out for his people. First of all, when Jacob flees from Laban, he has to go by night because he's afraid of Laban. And then when Laban finds out, he starts chasing him with an army. Jacob is incredibly vulnerable with all of his children and animals and everything else. But God shows up and protects Jacob in verse 24. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God is saying, I am watching you. Be careful what you say, because you ultimately are going to have to answer to me. So God protects Jacob in that moment, and God has been protecting Jacob for the last 20 years. While he has worked for his selfish father-in-law, when Laban has done everything he could to try to uh, use uh, Jacob for his services but not care for him as a son-in-law and try to deprive Jacob of everything that he could. And, and he was, a, he was a, essentially a slave driver for Jacob, keep, keeping him out in the elements, insisting that he not lose any of his rams or flocks. And if he did, he had to pay for it himself. And Jacob says in verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Jacob, Laban would have destroyed Jacob, but God was with him. He says, God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. This is the God that is revealing himself to Jacob, a God who protects his people, a God who defends them, a God who will provide for them even in the midst of affliction. 
There are so many times in our lives that we don't even know about it where God prevents evil from happening to us, where God spares us from some terrible trouble or affliction. And we don't even know about it because God is doing it in ways that aren't obvious to us. And then there are all the times that we do see God protecting us and God providing for us. When, everything, when the devil designs everything in our lives for our harm, God ultimately uses it for our good. And thanks be to God, we do not get what we deserve because Jacob had plenty of things that were uh, not perfect about his life. But yet, because he trusted in God and because God called him, God, in the end, blesses him with an incredible abundance. Jacob came to Laban with just a staff. And now he's leaving with a massive family and massive amounts of wealth. This is God's entire plan. His way of orchestrating uh, all of the wealth from uh, Abraham's old family to be transferred now uh, to his new family in Canaan. And now as that family learns to worship and follow the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, you see his blessing and abundance begin to flourish there in the land of Canaan. This is a tale of two gods. One God who in the end takes everything away and one God who in the end defends his people and provides abundantly for them. Jacob sets up a pillar to this particular God and Laban even in this text calls him Yahweh where you see it translated Lord that is the word Yahweh but Jacob Laban Laban calls him Yahweh but Jacob is still trying to figure out is this God a God who is for, a for me? And this is, is this the God that I can actually align myself with? He says in verse 42, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. It's still his grandfather's God. It's still his, the one that his father worshipped. And even in verse 53, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judged between them. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Jacob has not yet fully associated himself with God. But God has been patiently bringing Jacob through all of these experiences, through all of these processes, so that he can prove himself faithful. So that all of the evidence in Jacob's lives life points to a powerful, gracious, and generous God. Jacob is about to, we're going to learn, uh, have an encounter with God that finally fully opens his eyes to God as someone who is much bigger than he ever imagined. But even at this point in his life, God has given him enough evidence that he is able to be trusted and that he is fully for Jacob. It is said of Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, someone came up to him and said, Sir, are you confident that 
God is on our side. And he said to him, I, my ultimate concern is not whether God is on our side, but whether I am on God's side, because God is always right. God is far bigger, even than things that might seem incredibly obvious to us. God is ultimately always for himself. Because God is for himself, he has pledged himself to us so that we know that he will always be for us. And so when we go through these times in our lives where we walk by particular moments, or we stop and say, if I go that way, it'll take me away from God and more into the gods of this world. But if I go that way, it's going to bring me closer to God and more fellowship with him. We can look back at our lives and say, has God been for us? Has God done enough to prove himself faithful and powerful and generous? And if he has, we can, in those moments, turn again and again and again toward a God who is for us and be on God's side. One of those monuments that we often encounter in life is the very cross. The cross is the symbol of God's willingness to go to any lengths to be with his people, even experiencing shame and excruciating pain, paying the cost so that he can say, no matter what, I am going to be for you. If God is for us, we know that we can trust him. We can give ourselves fully to him, knowing that there will be nothing in heaven or on earth, in all of creation, that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God.